emphasize the P's too much or it'll be popping. All right. Um, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Samuel 15. Book of 2 Samuel chapter 15. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 339. Before we dive into 2 Samuel 15 this morning, I want us to think about the book of Proverbs. Uh, for a long time, I thought that Proverbs basically showed us two potential ways we could live. We can either be a fool or we can be wise. But when you read Proverbs more carefully, you find that the reality is a little bit more complex. Wisdom and foolishness are not like uh, two boxes that you're either in one or the other, but it's more like a, a spectrum, more like a continuum. We're always moving in one direction or the other. We're either moving toward wisdom or toward foolishness, which, which means that there are different degrees of wisdom and different degrees of foolishness. I want to give you an example. This is from Proverbs 26, verse 12. It says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. In other words, there's, there's something worse than being your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill fool. It is being a fool who is wise in his own eyes. That kind of fool does not realize or, or refuses to acknowledge that he is unwise. And so he shuts himself off from wisdom because he does not think he needs it. He scoffs at wisdom. It's kind of like someone who is very sick but they refuse to acknowledge that they're sick. They think, I know better than all these doctors. They don't know what they're talking about. There's nothing wrong with me. I feel fine. And so they scoff at the diagnosis. They scoff at the advice. They scoff at the treatment. And all they're doing is they're shutting themselves off from the potential remedy. So according to Proverbs, the chief virtue of wisdom is not intelligence. It's not book smarts or even street smarts, the chief virtue is teachability. Are you teachable or are you not? Now, the reason I thought of that is because Israel's first two kings, David and, or Saul and David, they are examples of the difference between someone who is unteachable and someone who is teachable. It's not that Saul is this guy who is unwise and makes all these mistakes, whereas David is this pillar of wisdom and righteousness and integrity. They both fail in big ways. But when Saul is confronted with his sin, what does he do? He scoffs at wisdom. He hardens his heart. He tries to justify himself. He says, I'm not sick and thus he refuses correction. So Saul is not teachable. David, on the other hand, when he sins and God sends Nathan to him, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. He, he is corrected and he receives wisdom. He repents. And so you and I have no hope of being perfect, right? We've already messed that up. We're going to continue sinning. We, we won't be sinless until we see Jesus face to face. But in the meantime, we can be like David in this regard, that we can be repentant. We can be teachable. We can open ourselves up to the correction of the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the people of God. And so in David, we see the picture of a man who is imperfect, but who demonstrates faith nonetheless. 
as we're reading today, we're, we're seeing David live with the consequences of his sin. His own son, Absalom, has rebelled against him and declared himself king. And today we're going to see David respond to that rebellion. And as difficult as it may be to see, I want us to look and, and ask ourselves, can we see some signs of faith in the way that David speaks and acts in our passage today? So be looking for any glimmer of faith that you see in David as we read today. So we're going to pick up in 2 Samuel 15, and we're beginning in verse 13. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Carathites and all the Pelathites and all the six hundred Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz your son, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now will I be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. 
So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is good because it is from you. You have breathed it out. And uh, we confess that it's trustworthy and true, and it is for our good. Lord, it's not immediately easy to see how this particular passage is for our good, how it relates to us. But Spirit of God, I pray that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have to say to us through this, your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I told you to be looking for signs of faith here, and uh, I don't know if you came up with anything as we're reading. It's not awfully easy to see. Um, David is fleeing. He's weeping. He doesn't have any shoes on. He's covering his head. He's telling people to go back. This story on the surface is all about David getting out of Dodge. He's, he's retreating. He's not showing strength. He seems to be showing weakness. He's fleeing because of what Absalom may do to him and to his followers. And they are weeping as they go, and David is weeping with them. But there is a glimmer of hope here as well. David Pallison describes David as being unafraid to be publicly weak. Unafraid to be publicly weak. David wrote his weakness into the Psalms. He says, for example, in Psalm 40, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. Now, why do I call that a glimmer of hope? Shouldn't David, as the king, should we not expect him to show strength at all times? Should we not expect him to stand his ground? Say, I'm not going to run away. I'm going to stand and fight. Shouldn't we expect him to say, no, let's not weep. Let's hold our heads up high. And yet here we see him weeping, retreating with his head bowed, his head covered, no shoes on his feet. Why do I call that a glimmer of hope? Why is it a good thing that he so openly declares his spiritual poverty and neediness? The answer is because that is the path to wisdom. That is the path to correction. That is the path to righteousness. To say that David is unafraid of public weakness is another way of saying that David was teachable. We see that same characteristic in the life of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 12, he, he speaks of this affliction. He calls it a thorn in his flesh. And he says there in 2 Corinthians 12, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And this is Paul's response. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I want to just ask you to consider how different that is than the way we sometimes hear faith spoken of. Sometimes we hear faith spoken of as claiming the victory or something along those lines. And what Paul says is, God has afflicted me. He has put this weakness upon me. And not only am I content with it, but I am glad because of it. And not only am I glad, but I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. Paul was unafraid to be publicly weak. 
These, these other false teachers in Corinth were saying, Paul is weak. He's always being afflicted. He's always having bad things happen to him. Don't you know how many times he's been shipwrecked? How many times he's been beaten? How many times he's been imprisoned? And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of any of that stuff because when that stuff happens to me, I'm identifying with Christ. If you think it's a problem to be weak, if you think it's a problem to be afflicted, if you think it's a problem to be beaten, then you've got a problem with Jesus because all those things happen to him. And when they happen to me, all that's happening is... I'm identifying with Him. The power of Christ is resting upon me. So I'm not ashamed of that stuff. I'm not going to hide that stuff. I'm not going to conceal that stuff. I'm going yeah, to pray that God would take it away. But if He doesn't, I'll be content with that. And I'm going to boast all the more gladly in it because it means that I get to do something like Jesus and I'm going to be content and I'm thankful that the power of Christ rests upon me. Paul was not afraid to be publicly weak if it meant that the power of Christ would rest on him and be seen by others. So here's, here's one way we could define faith. Faith is glad dependence on God. It's glad dependence on God. Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. Faith is, is dependence because it means that I admit my weakness, I admit my neediness, and it's glad dependence because it means that I am happy to be seen as weak if the strength of Christ is seen in me. And so I want us to take that definition and go back here to 2 Samuel 15 and, and, and ask, can we see that in the life of David? Can we see some glimpses of this glad dependence on God? And I believe the answer is yes. And I want to show you there are at least five characteristics of this kind of faith here in 2 Samuel 15. First, faith is spurred on by others. Faith is spurred on by others. So, in this passage, there are all these snapshots of David interacting with different people as they flee Jerusalem. In verses 18 through 23, we see him talking with a man named Ittai. Ittai seems to have been a kind of spokesman for 600 Gittites, a.k.a. people from Gath. Now, why is Gath uh, significant? Because it was the hometown of a fellow you've probably heard of by the name of Goliath. Goliath is that giant that David killed back in 1 Samuel 16. It's the thing that kind of put David on the map, if you will. A lot of time has passed since then. And we don't know why or how, but for some reason, at least 600 men uh, and their families had defected to David. They had come to him to, to take asylum with him. And uh, so the point is, these are Philistines. These are foreigners who had defected to David and come under his kingship. And David does not treat them as enemies. He receives them. In fact, he, he seems to feel guilty that they've come to him at a time when he's being run out of Jerusalem. He says to Ittai in verse 20, You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wonder about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. He's trying to give Ittai a way out. Listen, you've walked into a bad situation here, and, and I would not hold it against you at all if you decided to go home, and I will bless you and, and pray that the Lord would show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. 
Ittai's response, however, must surely have been encouraging to David. Look at verse 21. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. David, we are going to follow you, whether it's in life or death, we are with you. It's striking that Ittai, who is a foreigner, is the one who demonstrates faithfulness to God, while there are many Israelites who are engaging in treason. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis describes Ittai as an island of faithfulness in a sea of treachery. An island of faithfulness in a sea of treachery. Ittai is a gift from God given to David at a strategic moment of tremendous discouragement and uncertainty in order to sustain David's faith. I just want to ask you, have you ever had something like this happen to you? Not literally somebody named Ittai, but maybe a, a season of discouragement or uncertainty where you're discouraged about something that's happened or you're uncertain about what's going to happen. And just in that moment, God sends someone into your path to encourage you. I know God's done that for me. I'm sure He's done that for some of you in uh, the, the Christian classic, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress, this allegorical story uh, about this man named Christian who's on this journey to get to the celestial city. Over and over in that story, there are these times where Christian will he'll go into seasons of, of hardship. He'll be in the swamp of despond. He goes into the prison of despair. He goes into the, the city of conceit, all these different places. And all along the way, God gives him little things to encourage him. Uh, he, he, he sends him up on the delectable mountains, and they're refreshed by the river, and they meet these shepherds who encourage them and warn them about the dangers ahead. And we see that happen in our lives, that God knows how much we can handle. He knows when He needs to allow the floodgates of affliction to be opened and when they need to be closed shut. And He never allows them to overwhelm us. Uh, and when He does, He's there with us. So it's not a coincidence that from this point on, after Ittai shows this faithfulness and encourages David, after that we're going to see David acting more overtly in glad dependence on God. So God uses Ittai to spur on David's faith. Faith is spurred on by others. That's the first characteristic we can see. The second characteristic is that faith is humble and does not presume on the Lord's mercy. Faith is humble and does not presume on the Lord's mercy. So immediately after this interaction with Ittai, uh, these two men named Abiathar and Zadok, who were priests, come to David along with the Levites who are burying the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now the Israelites have been tempted at times to treat the Ark kind of like this magical token that guaranteed success. And you can imagine where that would be tempting to David to say, yes, let's have the Ark with us. Well, it'll keep us safe. But that's not the way David acts. That's not the way he treats the ark. He knows that God's not bound to this box, that even if we have the box, it's not a guarantee of safety for us. Look at what he says in verse 25. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. 
I want to simply suggest to you that faith sometimes says, if. We, we think of faith as this thing that's absolutely certain, where I'm claiming this, I know this to be the case, and sometimes faith says, I don't know. Faith says, if this happens, or if that happens, I don't know. But what I know is that the Lord is good, and if I find favor in His eyes, He'll bring me back. And if not, then let Him do what seems good to Him. I'm trusting myself to Him. So David does not presume that the Lord is obligated to do anything simply because he's in possession of this box. Rather than acting as if the Lord is in his hands, David casts himself into the hands of the Lord. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. So faith is humble before the Lord. Faith does not say to the Lord, you must do this. You have to do this. You are obligated to do this. Faith says, I don't know what the Lord will be pleased to do. I'm not going to presume on His mercy, but I'm going to cast myself on His mercy. The third characteristic of faith is that it moves trust into action. It, it goes beyond simply trust and it moves into action. I love the balance of these characteristics of faith. In verses 24 and 26, David casts himself on the mercy of the Lord. He confesses that he does not know what the Lord will be pleased to do with him. But then in verses 27 through 29, David springs into action. He sets up a scheme. It's not super easy to understand what's going on, but he says to uh, Abiathar and Zadok, listen, send, he's already told them, send the Ark of the Covenant back. But also he, he says, are you not a seer? He says that to Zadok in um, verse 27. Are you not a seer? Meaning, uh, do you, can you not see the potential of what God can do with you in Jerusalem as opposed to if you're with me? And so the idea is Abiathar and Zadok are to go back to Jerusalem and they are to um, essentially be spies, if you will. David is sending them back they can prove useful to him if they stay there. He tells them to go back to the city in peace. And he says in verse 28, See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until the word comes from you to inform me. So he's setting up a system of messengers who can essentially spy on Absalom and send David intelligence on what's going on. Those two characteristics of faith are not at odds with one another. On the one hand, David humbly presumes on the Lord's mercy. He refuses to take for granted that the Lord must do anything to alleviate his affliction. At the same time, he acts shrewdly. He knows that the Lord has given him a brain, and so he takes action as a way of expressing his trust in the Lord. The fourth characteristic is that David, or excuse me, faith pleads soberly with the Lord. Faith pleads soberly with the Lord. Again, there's a lot of complexity here. David is not just kind of puffing up his chest and being stoic about matters, nor is he being passive and saying, well, there's nothing for me to do. We just have to let this play out. This kind of faith that we see in him is, is gladly dependent. It is needy. It needs to be spurred on by a foreigner like Ittai. It is a faith that's humble before the Lord. It does not presume to know what the Lord is going to do. It is a faith that schemes and takes action, knowing that God may be pleased to work through creativity. But then we also see in verses 30 and 31 that this faith is expressed 
in David openly weeping before the Lord and in the presence of others. He does not keep his sorrow to himself. He's not afraid of being seen as weak. Verse 30 says, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. I am not uh, uh, an expert in uh, military strategy, but that doesn't seem like a good strategy Right for the general to be openly weeping, and so uh, beside himself in sorrow, with his no shoes on his feet and his head covered, and yet here here it is. This is an exercise of faith. In the midst of this sorrow, David gets even more bad news. In verse thirty-one, he finds out that a man named Ahithophel was among the conspirators with Absalom, and apparently Ahithophel was a highly valued strategist and counselor. Look down at chapter 16, verse 23. It says of him, Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. So to learn that Absalom has Ahithophel on his side is bad news for David. How does David respond to that bad news? He prays. Look at the middle of verse 31. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. That's it. It's not, uh, it's not a long prayer. It's not a stately prayer. It's a quick, urgent plea. O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. That's what faith does. Many people think of faith as this stoic, emotionless resolve in the face of trouble. But here we see, or, or they think of faith as this bubbly obliviousness to any trouble. Here we see a, a picture of genuine faith. It's not afraid to be seen as publicly weak. It's not afraid to weep openly. It's not stoic. It's desperate. Oh Lord, please act. And that brings us to the fifth characteristic of faith. Faith is... Encouraged by the Lord's providence. Faith is encouraged by the Lord's providence. No sooner does David get that quick prayer out of his mouth than the answer to his prayer arrives. It does not look uh, like what David might have expected, but here it is nonetheless. Verse 32, While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. I love how the author describes his disheveled appearance. Hushai does not arrive uh, on a horse. He, he doesn't have shining armor. He is dirty. His clothes are torn. But David looks beyond that appearance and sees an opportunity. So he tells Hushai, Listen, you will be more useful to me if you return to Jerusalem rather than staying with me in the wilderness. He tells Hushai to go to the city and to cast himself before Absalom as a servant. And whatever he hears from the king's house, Hushai can then communicate to Zadok and Abiathar, who will then pass the information to David. So that this system of spies or messengers is going is to work. And the chapter ends by saying in verse 37, So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Do you think that's a coincidence? No. None of this is accidental. It is the Lord's providence that Hushai arrives just as David has finished praying that the Lord would 
turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. It's the Lord's providence that Hushai arrives back in Jerusalem at the same time as Absalom. Over the next few chapters, Hushai is going to prove invaluable to David at every step. Even if it is difficult for David to see in the moment, God is at work to carry out His good purposes. God's providence rarely looks the way we would expect, but it is there if we have eyes to see. And so I want to ask you, should we not be encouraged by what we see of David's, excuse me, of God's faithfulness to David? Should we not be encouraged by what we see of God's faithfulness to David? David was God's anointed king. And you could say, well, um, Matt, surely we're not promised that God will be faithful to us in the way that he was to David. We have something better than that, folks. You see, David is a shadow of the Christ, the anointed one, Jesus, God's son. God's faithfulness to David is a foreshadowing of the faithfulness that he would show to his own son, Jesus. So if you are in Christ, then you are a child of God. If you are in Christ, then God's love for Jesus is his love for you. If you are in Christ, you are as loved and favored as Jesus. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God's faithfulness to David was a shadow of his faithfulness to you if you are in Christ. I want us to look at our own lives and ask, am I characterized by this kind of faith? Am I characterized by the kind of faith that I see in David? It's not perfect faith, but it is glad dependence on God. Faith is not about perfection. It's not about having it all together. Often our faith, like David's, needs to be spurred on by others. At times we take the Lord's mercy for granted rather than humbling ourselves before Him. At times we think that He owes us something. Often we face situations where, honestly, we don't know exactly what to do. We don't always feel triumphant. We often feel like failures. Yet faith can be present in the midst of all of that. And genuine faith means that we don't constantly look at the quality of our faith. It means that we look at the quality of our Savior. That's what genuine faith is. It doesn't constantly turn in and ask, well, is my faith good enough? Genuine faith says, I'm going to look and see that Jesus is good enough. We're not saved by the perfection of our faith. We're saved by the perfection of Jesus. We're not saved by the sincerity of our faith. We're saved by the sacrifice of Jesus in our place. We're not saved by the strength of our faith, but by the power of His death and resurrection. So look to Him. Cast yourself on His mercy. Plead with Him. Don't be afraid of appearing weak if it means that His strength is displayed in your life. Gladly depend on Him. In a moment, we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. This is our opportunity to respond to God's Word. And the, uh, the application for us is very, very simple. Um, when I say simple, I mean it's simple to say and understand. It's not necessarily simple to do. But the application is, 
that we ought to gladly depend on the Lord. We ought to say with Paul, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For His sake I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm going to be saying at the head of this aisle, I'd love to speak with you or pray with you this morning. The altar's open if you'd like to come and pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your faithfulness to us. We thank You for the truth that we sang earlier, that grace taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. So Lord, we look to the past and we see Your faithfulness. We see how You opened our eyes to behold the beauty of Your grace. And Lord, we also look to the future. The Lord has promised good to me. His Word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. So Lord, whether it is guilt because of past sins or whether it is fear of future uncertainties, I pray, God, that You would impress upon us Your grace and Your power and Your mercy. Lord, help us to look to You and gladly depend on You and that, God, we would not um, in this moment try to appear strong but that we would be content with weakness in order to exalt Your strength and Your mercy. God, now help us as we respond. Help us to respond rightly by repenting and trusting in Your Son, Jesus. And we pray all this in His name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.